0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 172 for December 13th, 2009. Recorded on December 12th, 2009. Portions transcribed. Well, the whole thing is transcribed. And today we go on a Safari. Apple's web browser, Safari, works really well on Apple computers. On Windows machines, it continues not even to be a contender for third or fourth place. On a Mac, Safari is fast. On a PC, it plods. On a Mac, Safari's display is accurate. On a PC, it can be made more or less accurate, but only with work. So I can think of no good reason to install Safari when it's handily beaten by Firefox, Chrome, Internet Explorer, and Opera, just to name four other browsers. But the latest version was released recently, so I gave it another chance. I like the look and feel. The screen of favorites starts with three preset pages. This is the screen you see when you open Safari. Safari learns what your favorite pages are and swaps out the default favorite pages with your most commonly visited pages over time. Nice idea. The display really is excellent. It looks very Mac-like, very similar in some ways to iTunes, and on the Mac, it loads quickly. On a Windows machine, it seems to take, if not forever, at least far too long. And if you take a look at the TechBinder Worldwide website to see the screen capture you might notice that the TechBiter Worldwide page, which is in the lower right-hand corner of the display, doesn't look quite right. The header doesn't fit the size of the column. You might think that's just a display problem on the iconized version of the page. Not so. I finally found the cause. Safari seems to redefine the cascading style sheet that defines the page elements and the relationships between the elements. The result is text that is far too small and as a result, columns that are too narrow, columns that do not fit the graphic at the top of the page. Now on the Mac, this page displays correctly, and after some research, I determined that the problem is caused by an incorrect default value in the Safari Preferences pane. Once I fixed that, the problem went away, but I had to know more or less what I was looking for, and I had to look around for a while until I found it. So before I even really started to test Safari, it was clearly an application that would not be acceptable. One additional flaw quickly became apparent. A few weeks ago, I described how to change the icons that appear in the taskbar. I also noted the ability to pin an icon to the Windows 7 taskbar so that it will always be available. I did that with Safari. But when I opened Safari, I was surprised. The program didn't highlight the existing taskbar icon as it should have. Instead, it created another icon instance on the taskbar. And worse yet, the second instance uses the original icon, the one I didn't like. So quick and not so sweet, the bottom line, don't sign up for this Safari if you use a PC, just two cats. I like Safari when it's on a Mac. On a Mac, it would get four cats. Although it doesn't have the add-ons that make Firefox such a powerful browser, it is faster than Firefox on the Mac. On a Windows machine, Safari is pokey, still has no add-ons, and is broken. So once again, for Mac owners, the Safari gets four cats. On a Windows machine, two. A few weeks ago, I grumbled about Karmic Koala, version 9.10 of Ubuntu Linux. I grumbled because it appeared that a lot of things were broken. On Thanksgiving Day, I decided to sit down in front of the notebook computer with a plan to find out what had been ailing Ubuntu. Most of the difficulties probably were the result of my errors or oversights, but the bottom line is this. They've been resolved. I am once again very happy with Ubuntu, and it now lives not only on the laptop computer, but also on the desktop, both of them dual-booting with Windows 7. It was so bad that a few weeks ago I compared the latest version of Ubuntu to Windows Vista. Since then, the updates and additional discoveries have changed my mind significantly. If you have Ubuntu 9.04 installed, don't be concerned about upgrading to the latest version, 9.10. My primary complaints back then were that Ubuntu 9.10 was slow, that I could not enable advanced graphics support, that Firefox was all but unusable because it was so slow, that applications are missing, and that I could not easily edit the Grand Unified Bootloader or Grub. Well, here's what I found after doing the research. First of all, the first three items are all related. Ubuntu 9.10 is slow, I can't enable advanced graphics support, and Firefox is unusable. These are actually various symptoms of the same problem. The computer was using default graphics drivers. Default graphics drivers means slow. As a result, anything that wrote to the screen, and that would be just about every application, was slow. What puzzled me was that the update manager didn't find video drivers, although they had been present under 9.04. I thought the updater was looking everywhere. What I had failed to notice is that unsupported updates, an important selection, had been deselected on the other software tab. The update manager has lots of tabs. Commercial video drivers are not supported by the Ubuntu community and they would therefore be on the Unsupported Updates tab. So, when I selected that option and ran another update, the appropriate video drivers were installed. I could select the Advanced Graphics support. The system was no longer sluggish, and Firefox returned to being its usual self. Three problems down, two to go. Well, guess what? The other two were related, too. Applications are missing, and I couldn't easily edit the Grand Unified bootloader. Some applications that were present under 9.04 are no longer supported and have been removed. The installer actually warned me of this. I noticed that when I installed the update on the desktop machine. So the complaint about missing applications can really be disregarded as unfounded, even though it's accurate. What I found most disturbing back then was that the K-Grub editor was missing, or so I thought. I might have replaced it with Startup Manager, but Startup Manager wasn't on the menu either. What I didn't notice until Thanksgiving Day, what I didn't notice until Thanksgiving Day was that the Synaptic Package Manager either wasn't present or that I had missed it when looking through the System Administration menu. So I told the Synaptic Package Manager to reinstall the application. I started it and once again had the ability to edit the Grub boot menu. So Karmic Koala gets four cats. Linux power users generally are not fans of Ubuntu Linux because the system tends to be a bit bloated. On a fast machine, you'll never notice this. On a slow machine, you'll barely notice it. Ubuntu remains the easiest Linux distribution for non-experts to install and maintain by a big margin. After a somewhat rough start, which was mostly my fault, the Karmic Koala is cruising on my desktop and my notebook computers. If you'd like more information, you can visit the Ubuntu website. You'll find a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. For more than a decade, WinZip has been a must-have application on my computer. Whenever I set up a computer, my process has been to install an antivirus application, an email application, Firefox, and WinZip. It just has to be there. Under Windows 7, and even under XP or Vista, that may no longer be necessary. WinZip 14, the new version just released, supports Windows 7 libraries, which are essentially aliases that combine files and folders from one or more drives under a common theme. All music files, all photo files, all documents, for example. WinZip 14 can zip these libraries and extract files to libraries. Whether this will be of value to you depends on whether you use libraries and whether or not you need to compress all the files of a specific sort. I haven't found a reason to want to do that. The application also understands Windows 7 jump lists, which keep recently used files and tasks within reach. Nice, but probably not essential for a zip program. WinZip 14 includes an enhanced preview pane that's integrated with Outlook so that a user can see the contents of a zip file without leaving Outlook. That's a nice feature if you use Outlook. I don't. So those are the three most significant features. They're all worthwhile, but I just really don't need any of them. WinZip is now owned by Corel, which continues to be one of my favorite companies. But I'm not sure that WinZip 14 is worth the $30 upgrade fee. After installing the shareware version and trying it for a few days, I ended up removing it from my computer. Windows 7, after all, all by itself, can read and extract files from zip files. If you need additional functionality, an open-source application such as 7-Zip can provide it. You will see some screenshots of 7-Zip on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Double-click a zip file in the Windows Explorer, and it opens in a 7-Zip Explorer view. Individual files and directories may be dragged out of the archive to wherever you want them to be. 7-Zip, as I mentioned, is an open-source file archiver. By default, it creates 7z files, but it can deal with most other archive formats, including zip. First released in 2000, 7-Zip was developed by Igor Pavlov. The application is distributed under the GNU Lesser Public License And it won the SourceForge.net 2007 Community Choice Award for Technical Design and Best Project. Now, my point here isn't to criticize WinZip. WinZip has been and is a well-designed application that has served me very well for many years. But 7-Zip is without cost. 7-Zip can compress and decompress 7Z, Zip, and TAR files. While it cannot compress a lot of other file formats, it can decompress all of these. ARJ, CAB, CHM, CPIO, DEB, DMG, HFS, ISO, LZH, LZMA, MSI, NSIS, RAR, RPM, UDF, WIM, XAR, Z, and more. When 7-Zip is installed, you can start the application from the Start menu or you can right-click an archive file to get a context menu with the usual selections for extracting files from the archive. To create an archive, just select the individual files or folders you want and then right-click for a context menu. 7-Zip's default format is 7Z, not Zip. If you want to use the Zip format, or the TAR format for that matter, use the top item in the context menu to open the full dialog. 7-Zip gives you a flexible and understandable archiving dialog. If I would have a complaint about WinZip, it would be that sometimes the menus and dialogues are a little overwhelming. In addition to the usual features, 7-Zip offers performance features that allow you to control how fast the archiving process is. This involves a trade-off with system performance. Give the archiver a lot of system resources, and it will finish faster, but system performance will be degraded while it's running. You can also apply a password to the resulting file, encrypt it, or create a self-extracting archive. Although 7-Zip can write by default in only three formats, 7Z, Zip, and Tar, that's enough for just about anybody. How many times, after all, have you needed to compress a file in the antique ARJ format, for example, or LHA, RAR, or GZip? Add to that the application's ability to extract files from all well-known archive formats, and you have an application that offers everything just about everybody will need. So, after more than a decade during which WinZip was always installed on my computer, I found that it's no longer necessary. The bottom line on 7-Zip for cats, it is a full-featured archiver, and it's free. Although 7-Zip doesn't have WinZip's support for Windows 7 libraries, jump lists, or enhanced previews, it's a solid archiving tool It performs well. For more information, you can visit the 7-Zip website, and you will, of course, find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, I have for you the case of the astonishingly poor fraud. Most spams, including the ones that promise millions of dollars from bankrupt oil firms or from the survivors of deposed leaders of an African country or from a dishonest banker who found some drug money or from the dying billionaire... Most of them are unremarkable. They're usually obvious frauds, but occasionally one is so well done that it deserves special mention. On the other hand, sometimes one is prepared by somebody who is so utterly inept that it deserves special mention, too. This is a story about one of the latter type. A message that was stuck in my spam trap looked interesting. In all caps, it said, YOUR COMPENSATION PAYMENT IS READY! What was even more interesting was that the two line contained approximately 100 email addresses. Dr. Tunda Limo, who claimed to be writing from the United Nations, apparently wanted to let me and the other nearly 100 recipients know that we had all been given an ATM card, which happened to be number 2680512001110686, an ATM card that contained 8.3 million dollars. Now, perhaps I should credit the crook who wrote this with at least managing to come up with a plausible credit card number. I didn't bother to test to see if the check digit worked out, but it's the right number of digits and it fits the right format. So at least that's plausible. The high point of ineptitude, of course, was the fraudster's inclusion of nearly 100 addresses in the two line. A message such as this would clearly be sent to an individual, not a group. And although the message claimed to be from the United Nations, the actual address was UnitedNations.org at beyond.lt. The country code LT belongs to Lithuania. The actual domain, beyond.lt, seems to be some sort of Lithuanian game site. But pay no attention to that. To receive my $8.3 million ATM card, I would need to contact Mr. James Brown. No, not that James Brown. I could do that by calling 234 Country code 234, as you probably already suspect, is Nigeria. Mr. James Brown also has an email address, Serve at iBibio.com. iBibio.com is a social networking site in India. So, somebody at the United Nations is writing to me from Lithuania to tell me that I'll receive more than $8 million from somebody in Nigeria if I just contact the Nigerian Federal Express representative who has an email address at a gaming site in India. Sure, that all seems plausible enough, doesn't it? Nokia filed suit against Apple, claiming that the computer maker had stolen 10 of the phone maker's technologies. Now, Apple has responded by filing a countersuit that claims Nokia has used a baker's dozen of Apple's technologies without permission. And Apple suit isn't short on content either when it comes to insult and abuse. Nokia copied the iPhone, Apple says, because Nokia was losing market share in the high-end phone market as a result of concentrating on traditional cell phones when the market was moving towards smartphones. You can almost hear the na-na-na-na-na-na, can not you? According to Nokia, Apple is using its patented processes for making phone calls and accessing Wi-Fi networks. Nokia also claims that 40 other manufacturers have licensed Nokia technology for their phones. Apple says Nokia is using Apple's patented technologies for connecting a phone to a computer and for teleconferencing. Apple also says Nokia's menus and power conservation technologies were invented by Apple. Both of the suits were filed in federal court in Delaware. That's a state where nearly all large corporations set up shop because of laws that favor big businesses. For some reason, I find myself thinking of the old Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.